Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to David Bleich about his book, The Materiality of Language, Gender, Politics and the University. He discusses the intrinsically political character of all language use and how androcentrism has shaped the course of academic inquiry. And he unpacks some of the implications of that for the way in which we should be conducting ourselves in academia today. I'm talking to David Bleich about the materiality of language, which offers a wide-ranging critique of the implications of modes of language use. David, how did this book come to be written? The, uh, the, there are two kinds of histories involved. One is a, uh, a personal history of being uh, responsive to language use in, in childhood, and the other is uh, an immediate, uh, I mean immediate, I mean maybe, oh, 30 years ago, uh, experience in uh, writing pedagogy in the United States. And so uh, the writing pedagogy industry had been uh, growing in a very uh, productive way before it was um, abrogated uh, suddenly by by the uh, canceling of a course at the University of Texas being taught by Linda Brodke. She had uh, the the, uh, foresight and insight to to teach a writing course in terms of actual uh, political issues that uh, existed at the time in, in about 1990, uh, but the course was was voted into to be offered by the English department by a vote of 43 to 6, and then the the uh, uh, university administration uh, canceled it, and uh, Linda Brodke went away from the University of Texas and went to California to a new job, and several other uh, writing programs with with us. Uh, uh, stopped in their tracks because they had developed uh, political uh, awareness, and uh, the the university administrations were enraged at, at this at this independence of of uh, pedagogy, this exercise of academic freedom by teachers of writing, and so it, it was nationally in the United States it, it it was stopped, and the whole writing pedagogy uh, profession was re. Uh, redirected toward the teaching of argument only. So, uh, and this was uh, a very provocative uh, development, and it was it happened largely because of the uh, increasingly conservative and, and corporate sponsorship of universities. Uh, because of that, you know, I, I I wanted to look into to the history of the university and and see what historically what the situation was. Well. Uh, what I found was that, in fact, from the founding of the university, universities had always caved into their sponsors. Uh, the university was founded by uh, churchmen, and often uh, uh, kings were were, spon- were main sponsors, but mainly the church for around, oh, let's say from the 12th century to the 18th century, the church was the principal backer of university. They were uh, uh, theology was the main subject. So it was this history that I discovered and 
just doing the reading in response to this local problem in the United States about the uh, tyrannical and arbitrary, you know, censorship of writing pedagogy that took place around uh, 1990. However, you know, I, I, I had long been interested in, in language from, from uh, childhood, from uh, home usage. And uh, as a result, I started reading about it. And the, the two topics of, of how language has been treated and how universities have treated language, they came together in a single uh, thought at one point, you know, back in, I don't know, after I finished my last book, uh, Know and Tell, or maybe while I was doing my last book, Know and Tell, uh, which came out in 98, uh, which was also a response to this issue. Uh, but then I, I saw that the whole matter, it's not only the writing pedagogy that was, that was, uh, distorted by, by, uh, sponsorship influence and, and, uh, interest, uh self-interest. It, it was the, the study of language was, was repeatedly, uh, carved up and, uh, apportioned in, into little bits to various uh, parts of the university from, from the very beginning. And any, any issue of language was uh, censored, was, was reduced in its consequence. Now, l- let me just tell an example of that. The, the, the example is that is Lorenzo Valla in the 15th century, which is uh, treated in uh, Chapter 2 of of the book, uh, Lorenzo Valla attempted to use his understanding of the history of rhetoric of Latin to uh, apply to the study of law in in the University of Pavia where he worked, and he 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 tried to do this in a, in a, a gesture of uh, collaboration, but his, in, in actuality, as historians have reported. His life was threatened, and he had to flee his own university and secure the protection of, of all people, the Pope with whom he was friendly at the time. And so, this this kind this was an extreme uh, instance where where uh, teachers of language have have noticed that their subject applied to other subjects. But this occurs routinely in today's university, namely teachers of language. If they merely say, you know, my subject uh, has something to say about your subject, they're um, they're ignored, they're condescended to, and they're, they're treated badly in the university. And the whole notion of uh, collaboration is is uh, rejected. And the reason for it. The, the, the punitive reason for it given is, is part of the issue of the materiality of language, namely that the most other subjects view language as a transparent medium and not as a material medium. They think it's largely spiritual, and they think that the principal function of language is reference. And the materiality of language, uh, a, a, an idea that has been understood since before Plato, uh, it has been censored, and that the, the those who don't uh, subscribe to it, you know, subscribe to a sense that you cannot monkey the sense of language that says you cannot monkey with the referential status of our language. And while we don't want to monkey with it, we certainly want to think of it and uh, re- review it 
uh, together and, uh, you know, see, see if anything can be learned. So in my book that, that many of the, the last, say, four chapters, eight, not five chapters, uh, all deal with that question of, of what happens when you examine the language of a variety of, of disciplines, because the university in general resists this collaboration and, and condescends usually to teachers of English or literature or to education teachers and so on. I don't know, maybe that was a long answer. No, it's very, it's very interesting, Hunter. The, um, I mean, the, the essence of your claim is that although you set out to expose the way in which uh, the history of the, the university ha- sort of brings its own uh, constraints and structures with it, the essence of your claim is that the materiality of language influences the way we ought to be practicing academic life now. Yes, yes, that, that is exactly right. It's a critique of how academic life is practiced because of, of, of unconscious or automatic assumptions about language that most people hold, namely that the principal function of language is reference. That, that's a, an old prejudice. And science has taken it up, you know, I would, I don't know, with, with a vengeance, but it's taken it up as if it were absolute certainty that, that the principal function of language is referenced. And, and that is, I, I think the history of the study of language shows that that is just not true. That the, the reason, the reason why this case can be made is that materiality and its precursor, nominalism, has been known all the time. Uh, you know, as far as you can tell, people understood what nominalism is. It, it goes back a long way, and it has, uh, during the university period and a little before, it was censored as heretical. Not, uh, it wasn't discredited by some argument that said it was, you know, a fantasy or a baloney. It was, dis- it was discredited as heresy. Uh, uh, that means that it was censored. And, and lots of important people like Wycliffe and Occam, you know, and, and even people like uh, David Hume and, and Barclay, they understood that about language, that, that it does not predict anything, that you cannot have absolute categories that, that show what the next instance is going to be. So they understood that nominalist principle. Many well-accomplished people understood that principle. And so... The, the university, namely, did not follow it. They, they followed instead the belief that the referential function of language is the, the, the main, the basis of language, and that is the opposite of the truth, especially given the fact of how language is learned, uh, which is discussed in, in Chapter 5, namely that it's learned by a, a, a totalistic process that includes feelings, relationships, and the political scene of one's home. And so the, the use of language retains all of those factors as a person gets older. But the, the study of language has always been reduced, is isolated into its referential function, and it, it um, prevents any understanding of a lot of the other functions that are simultaneously taken, taking place every time a person uses language. Okay. So uh, last week in class, students asked what the difference was between materiality and nominalism. Why, why didn't I just write about nominalism? And the answer to that is, is important because it relates to the, the gender issue. 
that materiality as an issue was raised by Julia Kristeva as, as a matter of what happens when women begin to study language, because the study of language historically has always been done by men only. And so nobody thought to, to say, well, maybe this skews the understanding of language, except uh, Robin Lakoff thought to say that, and Julia Kristeva and other women who, in, in our generation, my generation, uh, which they are, you know, began raising those issues in the 70s and 80s. So uh, materiality adds the political and, and bodily dimension to the understanding of language. And by political, I mean, you know, the, the, the relation uh, of, of, of people, who, how much power and authority they have relative to, to one another. So uh, th that factor is not a part of historic nominalism, which just claimed that categorical terms are just names, hence the word nominalism. They're not... They're not, they don't have a reference that categorical, general categories like freedom and justice and, and even family uh, do not have a specific reference until somebody gives them a specific reference for the occasion of speech. So the materiality people, the people who, who understood something different about language, namely its unescapable political function on every occasion, then had something new to say, something new to add to the nominalist tradition, which is that that is a certain interpersonal, social, and bodily circumstance that, that must be taken into account in any use of language. So for any use of language, that, that covers everything. But So my answer to that is yes, indeed, it covers everything and, and represents a, a different subject of language studies that who, whose purview is is to, to be able to study any any uses of language you know critically and collaboratively of course but it, it it wants to study any use of language in any context and to be able to uh, bring issues up for discussion under those circumstances and you can see that language now is is sort of in, in universities is um, what should I say it's in the linguistics department for example. Or if it's in an English department, it's literature, or in a comparative literature. But there, there's no no comprehensive sense of of language studies, as Mary Pratt had had suggested, that language studies is itself a comprehensive field that that applies to to all fields in, in much the same way that gender studies does, and is related to gender studies because gender issue in, in studying anything is has uh, not been been studied enough and not been taught enough to, to younger generations, or, or nearly enough for that matter. So materiality is, is a, a kind of a, a political enlargement of the, the long tradition of nominalism, which understood the actual function of language, namely that it's a, it's a tool. There are, these male philosophers also understood this, like Wittgenstein, of course, and, and Derrida, and... Um, Bakhtin, uh, they they also understood and they're treated in in my book, uh, but the the and, and they they were struggling because they were in a male tradition. All of them were in a male tradition, and they they realized something was very wrong with, with the study of language, and they they could not quite identify it. But it was, I think, properly identified by Kristeva and and Robin Lakoff, and so I decided that I would try to assert this this uh, view, 
in the book, and and that's that's what how the book developed as it as it did. Yeah, um, I mean it's irresistible to to compare what you're what you're saying to if you like the the Chomskyan or generative position on languages or the cognitive linguistic viewpoint as as articulated through linguistics departments, as you say. I mean it seems to me that what you what you propose differs in several respects. One of which is uh, is taking a much broader definition of language, and another of which is uh, adopting the view more generally that it's not legitimate or effective or optimal, at least, to uh, to be able to try and carve off language and study it in isolation. Is that a, is that a fair assessment of some of the well, crucial locale differences? I, I would go a little further. I mean, you're very uh, very uh, gentle, uh, I think, in, in that description. It's it's downright mendacious to study language without reference to these other factors. There is discussion in, in the book about what Chomsky had achieved, and I think his, uh, his principal achievement was the alerting of students of language of, of the universality of, of, of predication. He, uh, uh, that, that this remains the only uh, universal that, that applies to all languages, namely they they do have predication, but what Chomsky then did was say, if, if this is uh, if this is a uh, universal, we must find a little little switch in the brain, or a little little uh, an organization in the brain that 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 does this, and that was a false inference. That just because it's universal does not mean it's in the brain. So because a similar argument of universality, let, let's say a male supremacy, is, is universal. And yet, there's no no way that it's in the brain. That this is a universal cultural development, and the same I would say is true uh, of language. That there's a certain pragmatic quality about the the development of predication. And in in my in chapter five, I try to describe why predication is so important because it it applies to both both the uh, individual words that, that infants learn and to sentences that, that develop later on in life. They all utilize this, this matter of predication and, and things dependent on one another. But that is the very thing that Chomsky has refused to study. He has refused to study that in reality, namely in performance, that things are predicated on one another, that predication is a mutual event and not a one where the subject is, is superior uh, and the predicate is the dependent factor. He, he did not take that step like, like other male figures who just unable to, to understand what mutuality is and, and how, it, how it works. And so if you, if you view the whole process of predication, which is indeed universal, uh, then you, you see the, the matter of dependency is raised. And it, it is fairly well documented in the studies of infantile language acquisition that dependency is an, is an essential factor in the learning of language. And you, you cannot have merely cognition take place without a strong, effective component, which in the literature is rarely there. There are a few researchers, which I cite, who do bring the effective component into play, and all but one of them are female. And so that itself is a factor so that, that you, in studying language that, that the people who study it take a different attack than the, the men who studied it historically and particularly Chomsky.
on top of that, you know, uh, there has been no affirmative results from Chomsky. Chomsky started his work in 1957 when I first uh, came into college, and he had made that he made that uh, claim at that time that there was competence in performance and science, real scientists study study competence. Well, since in those uh, what uh, over 50 years, almost 60 years. No one has found anything to correspond to, to confidence in the brain or anywhere else. It's just a, a an abstraction <laughs> without a reference. And in fact, uh, many others like Philip Lieberman have insisted, and uh, Liz Bates, uh, maybe at about the same time as Lieberman, uh, insisted that the, the use of language is a total brain activity, which certainly makes sense given all the factors involved. But I, I don't really know. I don't study the brain, but I don't, I don't think it matters all that much in, in language, although it may come to matter a little more than it does now. Chomsky's effort and the effort of, of people in cognitive science, just it just does not seem to occur to them that you, you cannot isolate cognition from everything else. Sometimes it seems that it's different, but it isn't. It's part of the a single living organism, us. And uh, we, we, all these factors must be at work in all of us people who are busy thinking and writing and, and doing things because we want to do them. So as soon as you say you want to do something, that's an individual motive, and as soon as you say that other people are doing it, that's a political motive or a collective motive, that's an interest, a professional interest, as soon as you say that, well, uh, then you see you cannot isolate cognition. You cannot isolate competence. You you cannot make, make uh, branching tree diagrams and say that constitutes a, an explanation because it's not an explanation. The use of language to me is is much more properly described by Wittgenstein and Derrida, as well as Kristeva and Lakoff. You know, and, and those I would isolate as principal figures in, in in the discussion, and they all all have different views. And Chomsky, and, and so he has a, a, a bevy of, of, of male followers that have been loyal over the years, and it's it's a little uh, boys' club there, as Robin Lakoff had identified in one of her her essays on the history of the study of language. So uh, it's uh, it's too bad because uh, everyone uh, credits Chomsky with good good mind and a and a interesting politics and. A, a person who has directed the study of, of language in a, an important way, but it, it's simply erroneous in my view that th this is not scientifically valid. <laughs> yeah, I'm a humanist, but I, I it's to me it's just unscientific for for a, a person doing observation to say you know performance is not a factor in language when I I think it's a it's a principal factor and the factor most available. For scientific study, for empirical study. Well, I, mean, I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying about the uh, limitations of that particular approach to linguistics. I mean, I wonder whether, more generally, there's a there's a dispute here about the nature of uh, scientific study or the scientific process, which you, you discuss in some detail, to the effect of, you know, are simplifications justified, or, and if so, which simplifications are justified? It struck, me, it struck me that one of the difficulties associated with trying to study uh, everything as a complex system is that it's almost impossible to, to make any of the kinds of generalizations that, uh, that Chomskyans rightly or wrongly seem to be seeking after. Yeah, I, is, is that a reasonable I don't agree that it's impossible to make generalizations. Uh, I mean, 
It depends on what our aim is. Uh, for example, suppose our aim is to study negotiations with Iran on, on, a, on a nuclear activity that's taking place in, in Iran. So suppose our aim is that. Then we have, we, we isolate the issue, namely, which people are involved in this? What are the political stakes? What are they saying to one another? And then, what are the differences between English and Farsi, for example? What are the differences in the stakes? Who is participating in the discussion? So it's a guide. Uh, what, what I'm thinking is that the study of language is a guide to isolating situations in where amelioration of the use of language matters. I do not think it, I, I think it's self-evident that, that language is a, is a means of survival for the human race and plays a role in, in our lives similar to the role that dam building and nest building plays in birds' lives. Language is a way of life. And so you, you don't just isolate a way of life. Sure, you can observe dam building and how complex it is. Well, yeah, that's what happens in beaver brains. But we don't need to look at the beaver's brain to take into account all the things beavers do to build a dam. The same thing with, with language. You, you take an instance of its use and you, 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 you look at what's involved in, in having it get the optimum use in a negotiation of a political nature like this or negotiations that are less common now but of of union negotiations or congressional negotiations that like that took place in the United States Congress where there was this tremendous high up and everything ground to a halt because of the permissibility of some people uh, saying the things they do without consequence and so there's a certain uh, understanding about what free speech is. This, if the country grinds to a halt because of what several people are saying in Congress, something is wrong. Well, it turned out well for now, but but it, it's still one of those things where you use an occasion where language really matters in order to see if you can reach a generalization, but not to rule out a generalization because. There's no uh, way to do that either. You can't rule it out and you can't rule it in. You need to say, well, we can't make a generalization now. So let's say, let's say you're, you're a scientist and you want to, and, and you, 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 you want to understand languages as well as you possibly can. So it's, well, what do you do? Well, you spend your life looking at salient instances of the use of language where people are involved, where feelings are involved, where our, our bodies are involved, where all kinds of people, all different languages are involved. The relativity of language, uh, the Whorf hypothesis is extremely uh, relevant, that, that people feel differently about life because they, they speak different languages. And we're well aware that this is a fact. So we need to look into that and, and bring that in. Is the subject, is it slow going? Yes, yes, it's slow going. We're not going to find a transistor for, for this to, to, to uh, illuminate it. We're not going to find a, a principle of special relativity that everyone's going to say, oh my gosh, how come I didn't know that? You know, it, it's not going to be that way. But it still is certainly scientific because we're examining things, we're, we're trying to observe things collectively in a sense that everyone has an interest in observing 
the things that everyone has an interest in observing, such as negotiations of nuclear weapons in, in, in other countries who, who don't have them now. That's, a, that's an important, uh, extremely important matter because the survival of all people is at stake for that. So do, do we need not to say this is not a matter of language? Well, that's, that's foolish, it seems to me. This is partly a matter of language. It's a matter of a lot of other things, too. But certainly what we say to one another and whether we, whether we disrupt each other's feelings or, or each other's histories or each other's principles, you know, that all matters. And so why isn't that scientific? That, that's scientific. It's just not quantifiable. It's just not, you know, you can't predict it. You can't control it. So there, therein is the critique of, of classical science is the overgeneralization that predictability and quantifiability are the signs of science. No, they're not. The signs of science are, are understanding. Uh, is, understanding is reached from a wide variety of sources. And since I've been a, a, a literature teacher for many years, you know, I, I understand that fact, that understanding reached from literature is not quantifiable, but it's nevertheless as reliable an understanding as the understanding reached from a calculation or, or a statistical chart. It's equally reliable, and, and maybe in different contexts, but it's reliable, it's understanding. Well, why shouldn't all subjects yield understanding? That, that's, not, that's not how it is now. Right, right now, it's only science can yield understanding, and that's just flat out untrue. I mean, I, I guess a, a question is then whether, you, whether this is to do with the idea that, for example, linguistics is being overambitious in the generalizations it claims to be able to make. I mean, it, it strikes me that to take your objection in the you know in the most serious possible terms that if one were to try and understand the negotiations between the US and Iran about Iran's nuclear program that to do that it's necessary to understand in a profound sense what distinguishes those countries the, those cultures the languages that are spoken exactly. but but which doesn't in some sense uh, generalize to to other situations so in some sense it's not obvious there should be anything we can say about those negotiations which would also apply to the negotiations between U.S. and North Korea about its nuclear program or between U.S. and Iran about economy or economics or so on. Yes, I disagree with that because, because in, in the North Korean situation, one would equally have to take into account what, what happens in the North Korean language and the history of that language and the history of users of that language and that culture. You know, and why did it turn into the kind of place it did turn into? All of that needs to be, it's a total cultural issue. So that, that, that to me, that, that's very useful knowledge. That's not that, you, you can't just you can't just lift it out of Iran discussions and go into North Korea. Uh, but but you, you, then you, you want to move on maybe to Congo and, and to see uh, how to control the rape gangs that are that are going on there, been going on for many years where they're, they're running around. Each of those require different forms of talk. But as, but the the common assumption is that there's a different language, there are different people, and that the, the, the people trying to understand all of those crisis points and trying to use negotiation to, to ameliorate them need to ask a whole set of other questions that, that you just can't lift from one situation to the other, but you can, you can certainly discern an analogy between an adversarial meeting and a, a friendly meeting or, or a partially adversarial meeting or a neutral party. or There's so many different uh, permutations of, of relationships. That, that's all I'm getting at. I mean, generalization is not of the traditional sort. It's, it's where you, you see analogies. 
And, and by the way, this uh, figurative, analogical thinking was well recognized by some people, even in the 18th century, as, as a more a reliable basis for, for language. And I discussed one of these people, uh, Heyman, in, in uh, I think, chapter uh, four. He, he, this is uh, also, this is, this is part of what's understood namely that, that there are these figurations that are taking place in all languages, and these have to be understood. If they're not understood, you can see this problem will come up in translation things. There are certain figurative usages in, in different languages that, that can't be translated into our native language. So as soon as that's admitted, the procedure is different. Wouldn't you agree? The procedure for negotiation of critical situations is different. Once you, once you agree that figuration is taking place in all languages, well, then, then you need to interpret those figures. So, so yes, is that unscientific? Well, of course not. It's neither scientific nor unscientific. It, it reaches understanding, and it doesn't have a, a sacralized uh, standard to, to, to compare it to. It, it has a, a standard of mutual understanding. And that is that seems to me that people can understand that, that understanding is not the same as, as classical science. And science has, has been given too much, uh, too much room to, to do what it damn pleases, uh, to, to, to my taste. Yeah, I mean, I take the point. What I, what I really meant was not so much that, not so much that everything should go across automatically. Everything that we learn in in one field should generalize to other fields. This is, of course, as you know, disputed in linguistics on a, on a number of levels. Particularly, a recent focus on the idea that we're studying from a, psych- a psycholinguistic viewpoint. Uh, disproportionately European edu- European or American educated college right, right. students and, and trying to make generalizations that may or may yeah. not go across to other people. Yeah. I suppose my, my question was more whether anything went across, whether there were any kinds of generalization that we could take from one language to another, from one culture to another, from one gender to another, from one uh, ag- agonistic interaction to another. Absolutely. I, I completely agree that one can, but it, it, it varies. Uh, and the gender thing is particularly interesting because, you know, there are many, many of us who, who think that male and female are much more alike than different. Uh, the, and I grew up thinking that there's these radical differences thinking uh, between male and female. But, but as, as I got older and I, I listened more to, to the claims of others, that I decided that, no, no, we're not all that different, but there are differences that we are not been taking into account. So... That's all. That's all. That's where I stand. That not that you can or cannot make generalizations, but that we need to look at look at the situation with a little less sense that we already have the apparatus that will provide enlightenment. Because I don't believe we have such an apparatus. We have poor attitudes, and so th- that's all I think that 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 I I'm proposing that if we think of language a little differently. Not that much differently, but a little differently, namely that it it, it, it is a, a material item, and not really an object, but a material entity or, or an item or a practice. It could be a lot of different things. It, we don't have as much uh, prejudice in, in, in facing the uses of language. We don't have as much fear that, you know, we're not going to find or we are going to find. We have toned down ambitions to find ultimate we don't want to find ultimate answers anymore, as like, the physicists want to find the theory of everything. I mean, what a what a foolish enterprise that is. 
we're no longer looking for, for transcendental understanding. We're looking for understanding that will help us survive as, as, a, as living things. That's all. We were here for a short time. And uh, to me, to me, the ultimate value is, is that, we, that we actually try to survive. So, so that's what's up. As far. I, I completely agree that no one does not generalize. Anybody generalizes, but the only issue is how shall we generalize? How shall we do it? And why aren't we working more together in order to find things that we agree on? What's a generalization pragmatically? It's something that you and I agree on. That's what a generalization is. It's nothing more than that. That We agree that this is the case. Such and such is the case. So we have more people believing in more things then we call it a generalization, but it's just a, a constituency has come up. You know, it's like a genre is, is like a, a derivative of generalization or the other way around. It, 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 there's a, a collective sense of how things are. That, that, that's how um, we become to trust the knowledge. It, 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 that, that's almost never used in, in terms of scientific knowledge. That, that's trustworthy because we use the word trust to, to apply to, to people only and not to to understanding that we all have. So how do we come to trust knowledge? Well, partly because authoritative people tell us to do that, but also because many of us uh, trust certain things at once, and so it's trustworthy because a lot of people believe it. But we also know equally that just because a lot of people believe something doesn't make it trustworthy. So how, how do you react to that, to that common fact? At once, that when a lot of people believe something, we trust it more. At the same time, we know that when a lot of people believe something, that doesn't automatically make it trustworthy. Now, how do you respond to, to that formulation of the issue? Me personally? Um, well, I'm a well, spokesperson for linguistics, for example. Oh, well, I, would, I mean, it relates to a question I would like to ask, which is okay. uh, connected with you know, scientific practice in general, because you make the, make the point that like the scientific community has uh, arrogated to itself a particular status to demand trust and not be challenged. Correct. And I mean, there are, there are some aspects of that. I, I agree with it as an observation, um, but I'm a little conflicted about it because, on the one hand, I see uh, bad practice in you know, a wide variety of fields, some of which is attracting plenty of attention, and some of which just is kind of creeping by unnoticed. Uh, and on the other hand, there's, if you like, some some ideal of of good scientific practice, which this, this scientific community, which I include myself, believes as a as a route to explanation, insight, whatever. And I wonder whether that's whether you would would share the sense that there is, in some sense, a, a kind of a kind of practice that we can trust. And what has gone wrong is that people have been diverted or have diverted themselves from that path, whilst continuing to claim uh, all the advantages of it. Or whether you think that you know that idea of there being a particular procedure that 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 makes sense that delivers outcomes of this kind is is fundamentally an incorrect notion. Well, I think it's it's just much too dangerous to to, to expect a a single scientific method or or procedure to to obtain. Uh, it, it's just there are so many different areas where understanding is needed. Now, how in the world can there be a single procedure for understanding it except a, a, a language procedure, namely, what is our stake in this issue? I mean, is that a, is that a scientific question? 
yes, I think. Uh, is that a, a, a question of a, a humanistic question? Yes, it's a humanistic question. Yes, it's a scientific question. The, the categories themselves are inadequate. So we, we, we want to strip away some of these uh, extra superstructures of inquiry to say, what is our stake? In an hour, I say, well, we look at, are we looking at a, at a society? Are we looking at a country? Are we looking at the industrialized West? Are we looking at uh, us as, as, uh, as babies in, in school? What, what is the word meaning hour, you know, which is used routinely in, in describing uh, uh, the reports of scientific uh, investigations, we and our, you know, what, what is this we? What, what is our stake? So everything is susceptible of asking, why do we care? Is it not? Isn't that true? That, that uh, why does it matter to investigate this? Well, let's say, let's say uh, I, I, I asked the question, I, I've asked, I raised this before, and people say, well, what about knowledge for its own sake? And I say, there is no such knowledge of knowledge for its own sake. There's only knowledge for the sake of, of whoever looks for it. So what, what, what's wrong with abandoning this, this, this sense of knowledge for its own sake? We, we, cannot, we have no time to indulge ourselves, to, to seek knowledge for its own sake. Well, okay, then people then say, look, so many inquiries of knowledge for its own sake have led to knowledge that's really useful, okay? Say, take, for example, the development of, of, of radar in World War II. Uh, well, that's not knowledge for its own sake, but, but uh, that was, it was developed, uh, yeah, knowledge for the sake of war making. So they say, oh, that's bad knowledge. All right. It's not really. Now airlines are regulated by the use of radar and cars and, and all sorts of safety equipment. Um, things are, things are, are, are was, were not developed for its own sake. Let's say the um, computer people back in the 50s who were developing these huge uh, mainframe computers, they said, oh, God, this is fabulous. We can, we can make a human being ultimately if we just keep on this path. So, so it's knowledge for its own sake, you know, why they want to make a human being out of, out of uh, silicon, I, I don't understand, but they, that's what they want to do. What is this knowledge for its own sake? Well, it led to, to, the, to the equipment we're now using for this discussion, which is a good thing. But, but I, I, don't, I think that would be false reasoning to think of the search for knowledge for its own sake is, is necessary in order to lead to accidental discoveries, when in fact... Uh, knowledge, del deliberate knowledge, can be, uh, or or knowledge that we already have, can be imagined as conceivably of use, which is different from knowledge, from its own for its own sake. Wouldn't you agree that it, it's conceivably? Uh, uh, you can say, well, this looks like it can can help us. Let me follow this path, even though I don't know what the outcome is, because it conceivably is useful. That's a different policy in doing research than seeking knowledge for its own sake. That's all. It's not radically different, but it's, it's different because it, it takes into account other people's interest, why we're interested, what use it is, where it'll stay in the real world. So do a little Gedanken experiment for that. Look at the, the Hadron Collider in Switzerland and the, the superconducting supercollider that was canceled in the United States. You, you ask, well, they, they were going to spend $50 million, and, and uh, Steven Weinberg was upset because it, it was canceled. It was, it was built in Texas. 
but he could work with it. So what is, is that knowledge for its own sake, to find the fundamental particles? I can't think of a single result, the result of the study of, of nuclear particles, except the nuclear bomb. A single result that has, has come out of the study of so-called fundamental particles, except the nuclear bomb. The nuclear bomb came out of that. Now, who has that helped? Who's the, who's the nuclear bomb helped? Now everyone has one, and it has helped no one and put the world in jeopardy. Why, why did they look for that? Well, they looked for that because, well, maybe for war-making purposes, because the Germans also looked for it, uh, and, and the United States got it, got it first. And uh, so, so we, of course, we used it. But what is the Hadron Collider good for? You tell me. What, 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 what understanding, how does that understanding help anybody who is walking this earth? Uh, I've got to be honest and say I can't, uh, I can't tell you, but I have a feeling uh, the, the physicists would make, a, would make a better case for it than I'm able to. <laughs> um, I'm not going to try and do their job. That's, um, that's all right. I, just, uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I read what the physicists had to say. They never address that issue. They don't address it at all. They believe that they're coming to the secret of the universe. Uh, you read them, read Lawrence Krauss, and they, 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 it's, it's, it's amusing. Oh, yeah, but I wouldn't, um, I mean, their, their uh, you know, preconceptions about what they're doing are one thing, but I think, you know, some other people might be, uh, might be able to make use of their stuff to perhaps deliver something a little bit more helpful I to us. I hope so, but that hasn't happened. I'd like to, um, I'd like to turn back, if I may, to, um, a topic that we mentioned earlier in the talk and didn't really follow through, which is one that's very central to your book, which is the, uh, uh, the theme of gender, or this, you know, the anal major analytical lens of your approach, is this the impact of the androcentric nature of academic practice. How, how central is this? It's extremely, uh, I don't know whether central is the term, but it, it's, an overwhelming, it's an overwhelming fact of our lives, of, of, of human life. And the human society and human cultures, it, it, it's an overwhelming fact. And, and so I, I go back and look at my own experience in school, and I remember learning how to discount the fact that only men have done the research. I learned in school since I was a man, and I went to an all-male high school in New York City and an all-male college in Boston, and, and I learned to discount the fact that understanding was achieved only by men. Now, of course, I wasn't even told that understanding was also achieved by women. I wasn't told that, and it never, never occurred to me to ask. I don't know if it's true in your life, uh, since you, you were born much later, but, but uh, my experience has been that I have never been made aware by any teacher that all, uh, even by female faculty members in graduate school, which I had, that all understanding was developed by men. The understanding that we're getting was developed by men. Now, now, just consider that for a moment. If that's true, why, why haven't we learned about it before 1980? 1980! You know, when, when the third wave of feminism came around and, and uh, you know, discovering reality by Harding and Hitchcock came around and, and raised these issues for the first time, you know, all... All society, Congress, the Houses of Parliament, what is the percentage in the Houses of Parliament? You, you can answer that question. What is the percentage of women 
in the House of, in the House of, in, in Parliament. Uh, I should know that, but it's about, I think, about 20%. Well, there you go. It's the same in the Senate in the United States. Now, what does that mean about the government of societies if it's done only by men? So, is that a central fact? Well, for God's sakes, it, it's not central enough in my book. It's simply pointing out that it is central, or, or that it does matter more than we ever imagined. But women have been claiming this. You know, actually, <laughs> there are sources, I think the... the uh, epigraph of Christine de Pizan in the 15th century uh, of the book, uh, cites a source that notices this, this fact, and, and she, she thinks, how can it be that all these men hate women? <laughs> how can that be? She, it was the 15th century, so, so it went back uh, to, to before that, uh, the women in, in, in classical times as well, that women have noticed this, but it's not been part of mainstream knowledge, and men have been successful in diverting attention from this essential question, and uh, it is so important, and it, to me, it's it, if there is any basis for hope for the survival of life on this planet, is if the human species recognize that uh, the uh, both halves of the human species need to be involved in helping us survive, and that's not the case now. So that's how, that's why it's important. This gender matter had better had better happen. And for example, somebody has suggested that that uh, maybe every undergraduate should should take a a course before as a requirement for graduation should take a course in, in gender studies. Well, that's a very good suggestion, and I think every undergraduate should. Now, many women will say, "Well, we don't need that," but that is not true. Many many women do need it because women also are are affected by this. This male wind that's that's blowing that says that it doesn't matter that only men have, have governed uh, societies for eight thousand years. Well, it definitely does matter, and many women uh, don't really understand it until they're old enough to have children and they're stuck with all the problems that have two jobs, and the one is to take care of children, the other is to take is to, is to earn a living. This is uh, this is in Western industrialized West. I don't know how it is in China or or India or or the Congo, but this this factor is universal. This is, <laughs> we'll call up Chomsky and and uh, and inform him about the universality of androcentrism and and the male supremacy and misogyny. It's universal, and it is uh, one of the things that require. I'll give you another example. I've been teaching uh, for about fifty years. And I think only in the last two or three years has any student, and it's my prompting, has any female student say, I can't come to class because I have my period and I don't feel well. So this, this, is, this, is, this is only because I said it's okay to say that. Uh, if I didn't say that, they would not ever, ever, ever say that I can't come to class because my menstrual cycle is, is making me feel bad. Yet this must have happened throughout my teaching career, and no one has ever spoken up. They may be absent. They may say they had. They may lie. But imagine how what, what the mind of a woman is who has to feels that I cannot say that I'm I'm going to I, I'm not feeling well and I can't behave normally because I, I my, my regular menstrual cycle, which is not a disease, so they they can't say that. And uh, uh, put yourself in their shoes. Those you you have to lie about it all the time. What would be what would happen to your head? By you, I mean anyone. 
What would happen to your head if you had to lie about what's happening to your body as a matter of normal, you know, development or as a matter of, of, of expected things happening? Well, women have had to lie about it. So, so look how urgent that is. That just a little thing like that, let alone let alone not reporting rapes and beatings and 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 things like that, as as uh, Nicholas Kristoff has constantly tried to report that these things are going on all the time, and it's not reported. It doesn't matter. It's not folded into the whole agenda of things that that law laws that have to be enacted. It's it's not it's not discussed in in classrooms. Uh, it's it, it's horrible. It's downright horrible. So, so yes, yes, it, it's a central factor, but that's that's not quite saying enough. I probably didn't do it justice. I even left out some sources that that I should have included in the book because I, I it wasn't didn't uh, appear. I tried to be as, as candid as I can, but I, even so, uh, since my habituation is otherwise, it, it, it's uh, I can't I I didn't succeed in including everything that probably should be included. Well, I think you make a compelling case for the uh, for these issues, particularly in the humanities, where you, when you talk about um, Freud and the interpretation of, of, of his his views from that lens, and I think make a very, very, very powerful case. Uh, I mean, uh, what I really wanted about was the, the issue that you mentioned once or twice and, and uh, where there's been rather heated dispute uh, concerning the uh, if you like the legitimacy of what's sometimes called white white male science. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, it's not intrinsically wrong. I, it, it's just that it, it's incomplete. That, that's all. It it, it looks look, exactly as you foregrounded it or or or, or gave a, a premonition of it, uh, that, namely that how can we generalize? I, I believe it's a, it's a male coded impulse or a male coded practice to. To search for that generalization rather than to wait and make the generalization after one has thought through what the possible research procedures will be and to make a generalization only that applies. The male science with its, with its uh, heavy reliance on calculation and numbers, I, I don't think it, it takes a, a great imagination to, to see that this is a matter of control and and uh, and dominion over this is highly recorded and I think documented in my book you know like with bacon it's it's documented in in uh, David Noble's uh, book uh, world without women uh, it's about the history of science and and, and how how male uh, uh, white white male it it, it has been so we haven't begun to to ask this question about it's not as if the telescope is unimportant or or Avogadro's number is suddenly false. It's none of that. It's that what what else might be considered along with with these? How else do we do astronomy? Yeah, we need to look at it absolutely. But but what question shall we ask about about that? That's a, and that's the one area of physics where there are more women than than other people is is astronomy. Uh, what 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 should we ask about it? Because it's very hard to to do experiments uh, in, in astronomy because there's light coming in and you don't know where the hell it's coming from. Let's hear what kind of question. We don't even know. You know, we we don't even know if the science was equally populated by by male and female. It would certainly be different than it is now. I I, I don't know. Uh, I I think I I cited a few sources like from the history of the Royal Society in, in in Britain, 
that how how misogynistic it was, and yet it was a, a wonderful organization because it was independent independent men, you know, means who came together who wanted to find stuff out. Well, I, I thought that was great, <laughs> but, but but no one bothered asking because it was such a, a good idea. No one bothered saying, well, well, they all hate women. <laughs> what's what's going on? I mean, there's that 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 question. What's going on? What they just have a good idea. They get together. They do experiments. They they have a society that's still functioning. They printed everything in the vernacular. They didn't stick to Latin. You know what? <laughs> How come they all hated women? So don't you think we should ask that question? I mean, you, you may be familiar with the Royal Society. Well, not not intimately, but um, but these are some topics I would love to talk about a lot more. But uh, unfortunately, our time is nearly up, and I, I have to ask before we go. You open up so many possible avenues of research in your book. Uh, what what are your own personal priorities going forward? Yes, uh, I, I do have one, oddly enough, which I don't know if I'm going to live to do it, but I have it. I, I'm working on a shorter a shorter book uh, called uh, The Matter with Men, and uh, it has to do with the fact that men derive their power from each other. That historically, there has been a bonding of men. Uh, not all men, but many men, and especially those who have guns and money. There's a certain group psychology that goes into effect, into effect that transcends the individual interest of, of men. So it's not it's not um, it's not in the genes. It's it's sort of a, a social practice that men learn early because it's inherited. It's 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 analogous to what uh, Nancy Chodorow wrote in the reproduction of mothering. It's sort of like the reproduction of, of male hegemony is 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 the topic, or or, or reproduction of misogyny, something like that. That that men men bond together in a way. That is, it's nicely described actually in, in two places in, by Ong and by Conrad Lorenz, which I do deal with in, in the book. But, but there's a, a kind of a mystical union that is both inherited, not, not really mystical, but a, like a spiritual or, or social union that happens. And, and many men, especially those who are ambitious and who want to achieve a lot and who want power, you know, they uh, assemble a, um, a collective of of people who have their backs and on whom they can rely. Uh, a good example would be the police, the, the prostitution. The, one of the things that, that uh, keeps prostitution going is that all of the, the police and the lawyers and the judges who, who have, uh, who have uh, responsibility to, to uh, oversee prostitution are themselves customers. And so because they're customers, and they have a silent agreement with each other that it's okay to be a customer. So then nothing changes with the with the regulation of prostitution, which many many women and many prostitutes have said, well, it should be decriminalized. It should it should be a different way in which it's handled. But it's handled the the old way because of male bonding with with one another. So I'm working on that. And there are several books by men, and there are many books by women. You know, like uh, uh, Peggy Reeves Sanday, Fraternity Gang Rape, the very, very good book. Uh, other other studies of, of, of Lionel Tiger's men in groups that, that are older and who, who tried to face this problem. So I'm going to try to use literary sources and, and social sources and political sources to, to discuss 
this issue of, of, of how the collective male ideology has been uh, developed and transmitted uh, for, for so long and, and why it's so, it's so hard to, to, to break it. How's that? That's great, and I look forward to, look forward to uh, reading about it and hearing a lot more about it uh, when you're uh, more advanced in the project. <laughs> but for now, I shan't consume another hour of your time to talk about it. David Blythe, thank you so much for your interview. I've been talking to David Blythe about the materiality of language. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.